controversy, fun, and conversation. All the things that radio used to be. NapaBroadcasting.com Welcome back to NapaBroadcasting.com. If we're to look around the valley and look where all the serious political action is and the contentious issues that are taking place, we'd find that the answer is in the county and specifically with the Board of Supervisors. Think about it. Displacement from the earthquake, a new campus for the county's largest agency, Lake Berryessa, Walt Ranch, the Raymond expansion, Napa Pipe, Yountville Hill, a new jail, groundwater, transportation, and I barely touched the surface. The issues facing the Napa County Board of Supervisors are vast, and the differences in community viewpoints on many of these issues are as divergent as they've been in over 10 years. Add to this the departure of Bill Dodd, one of the longest-serving supervisors, the departure in two years of Keith Caldwell, new members of the board trying to get up to speed, and you have the makings of, well, what I hope will be an interesting conversation with Napa County Board of Supervisors Chair Mark Lewis. Mark, thanks for coming in. Hi, Jeff. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking. Good to have you here. It's a powerful list. It is. None of those things are small. It's. It just seems to get more and more and more as we keep going, yes. Um, it really is a, a busy time, and, and the thing that kind of overrides all this, I suppose, or the overlay to all of this, is that all of these, or at least most of these issues, have a certain amount of contentiousness associated with them. Certainly not uh, your, the earthquake and the facilities, but uh, there are a lot of different viewpoints on some of these issues. Uh, with the economy coming back and uh, the resurgence of traffic and all those favorite things, yeah, I think a lot of the uh, land use issues are sort of coming to the forefront. Maybe they'd sort of been hibernating for a few years as we dealt with the recession, but uh, they've come back. And uh, I think a combination of drought, hopefully these last few rains will make a big difference, but um, concern about water availability and the hillsides and the like have uh, compounded that discussion. So, so yes, we've had some, and we will continue to have some land use discussions. Actually, I think it's raised some fundamental issues that have been sort of uh, lying in the background that we actually need to deal with. And so, um, so yes, much more to come. Do you think that it's just the economy or that there's something else that really has brought many of these land use issues back to the surface? It's been... It's been a lot of years, maybe six or seven years, since these issues really surfaced in, in a really powerful way. Winery expansion, uh, the winery definition ordinance. Right. You were involved in a debate many years ago about right. weddings. I mean, right, right. it was really hot and heavy, and then all of it kind of went away for a while. They were lurking below the surface, but they kind of went away. And the past year and a half or so, they seem to be coming back with a vengeance. Well, yes, and uh, so uh, anybody can talk about what's tripped that, but um, I think uh, there were there have been some fundamental questions raised, and uh, key to that is the question of uh, what justifies building these industrial commercial uh, facilities in our ag reserve areas. And uh, we used to have a pretty good answer, which was to process Napa Valley grapes, and thus the seventy five percent rule. Uh, where uh, new wineries would have to process 75% Napa Valley grapes with the presumption that there was this inventory of grapes that needed to be processed. Well, we've now come to the realization that we permitted far more capacity than can is needed to meet that 75, well, basically to, need, to meet the needs of the grape production in Napa Valley. So, uh, so the question then is what justifies building the next winery in the ag resource area and why shouldn't we 
basically limit that only to uh, the uh, industrial and, and urban areas. And so we don't have the justification that we had originally under the winery definition ordinance, and we have to revisit that and uh, and deal with that. And so I think what brought these to the forefront were the is the traffic, and, and that's related to the employment. And, and when the economy came back, uh, employment and activity rose, and all of a sudden it all sort of – uh, the intensity became apparent to everyone. Um, and then the question was, really, for each individual winery, why are we building this winery? And, and uh, the underlying question sort of rose to the surface that, yeah, we have crossed that threshold, and we really need to revisit that that whole basic discussion. There's two parts of that. There's new wineries and winery expansion. Right. When you look at those, when I say you, the board specifically looks at those, do you look at them in the context of this controversy differently or the same? The uh, the fact that we've got – now that we're aware that we've really um, permitted as much capacity as really needed at this point. That doesn't mean it's built, but it's been permitted um, – it does raise the question of what the justification is to to approve a particular winery, and so uh, and so we've really got to get our arms around that relatively quickly. I, I, you know, some of the it, it's I just really have a number of questions as to what this means. If if we were to, uh, I think, do what this is sort of telling us to do, that we need to restrict, perhaps even eliminate further permitting of wineries in the ag resource areas. Uh, then do you make an exception? How about the the um, estate vineyards where you're just uh, building a winery for your own uh, use? Um, so there may be, you know, that whole thing has to be discussed. How about the capacity that's been permitted but isn't being built, may never be built, maybe it was never intended to be built? And how do you get that off the book so you're clear as to where you stand? So there's some key questions. We're trying to get the real data to say exactly where we're at. But all those drive the the real ag preserve question, which I think is fundamental. It's it's been the foundation with which we've operated on uh, over these last twenty plus years, and uh, and uh, once we answer that question, then I think some of the other questions uh, it will be easier to answer in terms of what what's allowed at a winery, what isn't. Well, if we're not permitting new wineries in the ag areas, then uh, then maybe those questions are easier to answer. So. And of course, there's the expansion of ag land in general. Right. I mean, just so that's the other side to of the it. amount, right? Which to is the amount of planting. Sounds like the same issue, but it's really the flip side right. of the issue because uh, what, what's apparent is we probably got more winery capacity than we do vineyards, and so uh, really, from the industry wide and from the county wide perspective, we we need more vineyards uh, to to feed those those uh, those wineries, and so and that is been declared for you know since 1968 as our as highest, highest best, best use. use and so um of course uh you know with the i think you know some of the big issues have been around water i mean we talk about a lot of other things like uh preserving uh wildlife and and, and the like but ultimately i think it comes down to water and when you're up in the hillsides and you're dependent on groundwater Whatever your neighbor is doing is very important to you. And so we, we see a lot of neighbor interest in what's going on with these uh, vineyard uh, plantings. And I think there we've got actually a very rigorous CEQA-like process where we, we evaluate what's going on with these things very carefully. And, and I believe those processes will play themselves out and, and we'll address those questions. What seems to be different – you just touched on it a moment ago – what seems to be different – then when this debate took place several years ago 
is that the whole issue of neighbors and how it impacts neighbors seems to be a much larger issue. It was more about the wineries and and certainly the environmental people were involved in the debate in the last discussion around the hillsides. This time, neighbors seem to be playing a much bigger role. Well, well, neighbors always have played a pretty (laughs) big role. Um, And so I think maybe what's different uh, is that there really are some fundamental questions that we need to talk about. if it was just neighbors, then you you have to do what we do, which is listen carefully to what their concerns are, identify the legitimate concerns and address them and, and recognize that sometimes people just don't want anything to happen next door. Um, but that's obviously not, not the case. Everybody has their own property rights. And so um, – but uh, yeah, we'll uh, – so neighbors do what they do, which is raise issues, which is good. A lot of times we identify a lot of issues that need to be addressed that we wouldn't have identified otherwise. So uh, so it's not to dismiss their concerns, but uh, it's not uncommon for neighbors to be concerned about just about anything that's happening right. next door. So, How does this discussion take place, in your view, in, in a calm, kind of rational way? Somebody said years ago – that you can't have a complicated discussion in a boiler factory. Right. And given that these issues have now risen to the level mm-hmm. they have, as, as you've alluded to, how is it possible to even have a conversation about the winery definition ordinance and reopen some of these issues without everybody getting to the point where it is so emotional and so contentious that there isn't the, the room, there isn't the space to really have a serious conversation? Well, I... I, I think the way you get there is by really dealing with the fundamentals. I mean, we, we, we've got a great precedent in terms of how we justified uh, building wineries in the ag resource areas. Again, you know, why, why aren't we building restaurants and hotels and other things that would thrive very well in these beautiful, pristine environments? Uh, it's because they're not ag processing facilities. And, and we concluded that wineries were ag processing and they were justified to process Nab Valley grapes. So that, that was a great foundation. It's, it's been the basis that we've moved forward on most everything we've done. And that's the question that we need to answer. And I think we can talk about that in a very, you know, factual, uh, deliberate way. And I think people will see the conclusions that, that, that we come to, uh, then, you know, and then I, I, I think it may not be as difficult to get to where we're ultimately needing to go once people see the realities of what we're dealing with. Um, and uh, so that could be difficult. It, it will be difficult. We're talking about land use and people's <laughs> property and, and things like that. But I think if we can be thoughtful, logical, factual, um, and I think we do have the the groundwork for doing that, then it at least it will be understandable and it'll take some of the the anger out of it. Is there pressure that comes from the other side in that if these projects are not going to be approved for ag processing, as you say, then there's going to be pressure to use them for something else, for the hotels or the restaurants or whatever it might be? Well, no, that's the point is that we're, we're saying that uh, that really the only – that wineries are no longer needed in the ag resource areas um, and as well as any other type of commercial activity. So that wouldn't eliminate them. We still have a great industrial park, which is well located in terms of transportation and the like and other services. And and, uh, and I know the cities are uh, open to welcoming uh, winery-type activities in their boundaries as well. So it doesn't say you can't build a winery anywhere in Napa County. It just says that those areas that we've set aside for, for agriculture – 
are for agriculture. And we've crossed the point where we need to build these commercial facilities in these areas. If the commercial facilities start to move into the cities, let's say city right. of Napa, just for argument, does it create a revenue issue that the county is concerned about? Uh, I don't think so. I don't I don't believe the county ever set out in this uh, ag preserve effort to generate revenue. I think it really was fundamentally about preserving agriculture and making that the highest and best use. Um, ultimately, that has really turned out well for our community. Um, but uh, I think, uh, you know, we, we just need to continue to do that, to continue to preserve what makes Napa what it is. And uh, and then the rest will take care of itself. And so, um, so yes, I, I think you know we want to be legendary both in the current sense as well, and not in the past sense that we need to do that. So, um, what about the debate that still goes on? And this is part of the expansion issue with a number of wineries, including the Raymond Project, for example with respect to events. And and that debate is still going on. And yeah, you, it, you've it, tried many times over yeah. the years to, to sort of square that circle. Uh, yes. And uh, I think uh, we have seen uh, that obvi- uh, that uh, marketing, th- you know, one-to-one marketing, uh, using your facility to connect with people, uh, using events to connect with people really is a very, very important part of how uh, wineries sell their wine and connect with customers that, that keep coming back. So, um, and that's worked really well. And it's why Na- one of the reasons why Napa commands uh, a premium on our wine. So it's, so, so that's true. Uh, but I, I recognize the other side of the coin, in which I never really thought we would get to. Whereas some of this activity can be generate enough revenue to justify the facility all by itself. If you're charging twenty dollars a head to walk through your place, and you're seeing thousands of people a week, uh, that's a lot of revenue. And uh, so we just, that's you, you, now we've started to push the envelope to the point where it's perhaps no longer marketing, but uh, as a revenue generator all by itself. And and it's why some of these facilities are being created, not to process grapes, but to uh, uh, have a revenue-generating marketing opportunity. And so uh, so that's legit. I mean, I mean, that's a legitimate concern that we need to make sure that, again, this is, this is agriculture-related, that we allow people to do the business they need to do to connect with customers, but that we're not running, you know, commercial entertainment facilities, and we're, we're supposed to be doing agriculture. Mm-hmm. To what extent is there concern about competition from Sonoma, from Paso Robles, from other wine areas that suddenly are really seeing some of the problems here and trying to take advantage or trying yeah. to pick off based upon what problems are You mean the here? cheese country next door? Exactly. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> that one. Um, hey, it's a big world. Actually, I think it's in a sense we uh, support each other. The the premium wine market is actually a, a very uh, limited volume of wine, and so I think there's enough market for everybody, and and I think we we help each other. Uh, every is what I've learned is is that every community does it differently. I don't think anybody does it like Napa County does it. There's uh, places where they have basically hotels that serve as wineries, and and so. Um, and uh, but we know uh, for what we have here, I think we've chosen the right course in doing everything we can do to preserve agriculture. And, and you know we're so close to the Bay Area, and there's so much pressure to develop. And you look at what happened to San Jose, which also used to be an ag uh, area at one time. Um, 
you know, if we don't really hold the reins, it, we will become legendary in the past sense. So, How has all this changed in your view? I mean, you've been on the board 18 years now. Yeah. That's uh, a, a long enough period to really see some change. And yet, in some ways, it's still the same. The issues are still the same. The debates are similar. What's changed and what stayed the same in terms of, of some of these issues? Well, I think what has changed is um, just, well, what what Napa has done, which has uh, really become the premium wine market in the world, and, and how we do that in terms of connecting with, with our customers, their customers, and uh, and. And it's not just the wine, but it's the experience. And and, and so I, I think that was actually, in one sense, that's a change. In another sense, it's not. It's what uh-huh. you know Bob and Dobby did right from the beginning, and it, welcoming people in to taste his wine, which was you know in in Bordeaux, France, was like what that's you know you just don't do that. And so, but that has grown to prove itself as being a a, a very uh, successful um, approach to uh, connecting with our customers. And uh, so it's needed. And so um, it seems like we've done all the right things. We've preserved agriculture. We've allowed uh, those facilities to market appropriately. And I, and I think we've just kind of maybe matured to the point. Uh, you know, I think we got over as well over 500 wineries. I think when I started, there was something under 200 wineries. And so so that's changed. And um and so we've just we built out. You know, we've got more capacity permitted now than than the the valley has capacity to produce grapes. And so uh, that's that's a point where you have to reassess and, and make some new decisions about how we go forward. One of the big things uh, moving away from wineries for the moment that's taken. I mean, it feels like it's ten years, seven years at least. Is Napa Pipe finally coming yeah, to uh, that? <laughs> at least some inflection point? I won't say the end of the yes. road, but at least some critical turn. Yeah, talk a little bit about where things are. Just just give an update. I think we're still dotting I's and crossing T's. I think we've come to terms. Uh, we've, it's been on our agenda the last couple of weeks. With uh, the got continued because there were still uh, some questions, but I, I think we're just about there. Um, we've. Uh, perhaps even beyond just about there, but actually having approved the uh, design guidelines and the like. So uh, so I think we're just another meeting away from doing the final final documents. And so uh, hopefully what that means is, and I, I believe we do have a very uh, high-quality design in terms of whatever's built there is going to be uh, very uh, attractive. Uh, I think the timing is actually good in terms of how it all played out, and I'm sure the developer didn't want to wait 10 plus years. Right. But in the end, I think uh, he wouldn't have done any better given where the economy has been. And so the timing for building or higher density housing is actually very good. As we look around uh, the Bay Area and, and the country, really, there's quite a, a movement to uh, more urban type of settings, uh, the, both young and old, uh, older generations are looking of moving out of their, their families, you know, single family homes, uh, to something uh, that's more smaller and, and more accessible to services. Younger people don't seem to have the same got-to-own-a-home type of drive that right. we had when we were young, and, and they're quite happy uh, living in an urban setting as well. So so that type of housing is not very common in Napa, so I think uh, what is built, built at Napa Pipe will, will definitely fit a need. Um, and I think actually, you know, the argument, will it 
you know, it will make more traffic. I think it has the opportunity to actually help reduce traffic by giving a place for some of the folks who do work in Napa to live in Napa instead of having right. to commute from outer areas. What about the relationship with the city and the possible annexation? Well, that's all played out. I mean, uh, the city, for whatever reason, decided they wanted that to be inside city limits. And uh, so we that's basically what our agreements uh, come to is uh, uh, we've recognized their interests and have accommodated those interests. They've recognized our needs and interests, and, and we've accommodated – they've accommodated those. So that's what this agreement does. It allows us to meet our housing allocation needs that we have to do uh, from a statewide perspective, uh, state mandate. Um, but it allows them to uh, bring that property into the city. Uh, the, the developer will pay many of the fees that he would have paid if he were in the city, art, art fees and all kinds of things. And so um, so he, he's got a tough road to hoe in a sense. He's got to please both of us as they go through this um, uh, development process. But hopefully we've uh, outlined everyone's expectations clear enough so that that path won't be too difficult for the developer. But ultimately, it's expected that all this will get annexed to the city, including the Costco, um, and uh, we will have met our housing needs. There will be good quality housing and good quality development for the community to uh, be a part of, and the city will uh, have what it needs in terms of revenues and service uh, capacity. So, And, of course, you've been wrestling with all of these many issues we've talked about in temporary offices of late. Yes, How's that working yes. out? Well, we, yes. So uh, the earthquake uh, kind of uh, got every, everybody moving, literally. And so, um, you know, we have about 1,200 employees in the county, and 400 of those employees were displaced as a result of the earthquake. Uh, it just seemed to target county county buildings for some reason and uh, we were just really fortunate that we were in the process uh, we had bought the uh, uh, the old day lab facility right. I mean one wonders what would have happened if that wasn't there well we would have been even more creative whatever <laughs> that means I'm sure you know um, but uh, fortunately we only had to be so creative and uh, so it did accelerate uh, well not only accelerated people moving into those offices but there's like the administration team, myself and the staff, are there um, for temporarily. We'll be moving back into the administration building when it's ready uh, because other health and human service uh, offices will be located where we're currently operating. So so it gave us a place to go, um, but not for everybody. We still had to lease some space to get our, our district attorney and others into to space. So we're but, you know, we really uh, just really proud of our staff, uh, Public Works and our IT department, uh, how quickly they were able to get computers up and, and temporary offices, even if they were like card tables in, in the library, up and going so that we really didn't miss a beat in terms of meeting court deadlines and seeing our probation folks and doing what we have to do as a county. I keep hearing that there are some people that like it down there and not so they crazy do. about going back they downtown. Do. Uh, those who are working there enjoy the uh, the environment. And so um, um, – but, we, you know, we, we still have a plan. We have to, to move with it. We, you know, we thought perhaps with the earthquake we could like, well, let's see, you know, Crithers is damaged. Maybe we don't need to repair it. We can go on to other things. But – uh, I don't think the timing will allow that. We got to get people back into their offices in, you know, a few months, and to do much more than that would probably take more like a year or more. So, so we're we're just basically repairing what we've got so people can get back to uh, their offices and get to work. And then our longer term plan is to um, 
you know, move folks ultimately to that area, but we'll still have a significant presence downtown with our legal teams, um, uh, district attorney, probation, everybody has anything to do with the courts. Um, and, uh, and then the other issue is the jail, and right. so that's another big capital issue. If it, if it weren't for the jail, we could do some capital improvements in these other areas and perhaps move things quicker, but we have a demand for our capital to, to build this new jail, so we don't have the freedom to just go and, and um, do the improvements that would be needed if we were going to move much quicker than we are. Is there a plan or conversation about putting a bond issue on the ballot in 2016 for the jail? I'm not aware of it. <laughs> I guess not. Um, uh, I, I, you know, actually, I think now that you mention it, I think I remember hearing a discussion of that a year or two ago, and my feedback was nobody's going to vote for that. Um, you know, we'll vote for a lot of things, but uh, I don't, I don't know that you're going to get folks to vote to tax themselves to build a new jail. So, um, our our you know, we've got in our capital plan, we were, we're setting aside revenue. We've got some 20 million or more sort of set aside to do that. And we're hoping with some state assistance and continue to saving our pennies, you know, over time we will, we'll get there. Uh, we are building a staff secure facility, which will help relieve the load of, of those who uh, are, are, are not as much of a security risk, which mm-hmm. does free up some beds in our current jail so that will help get us uh, by for a while, but ultimately we do need a new jail because the state mandates of, uh, have sent prisoners to us who right. are going to be there for many, you know, like up to seven years, and you've got to have facilities where people can get services and can recreate and do the things you got to do if you're going to be there seven years, and our current downtown facility doesn't allow that. What potential does that create for the space, the downtown facility, for the land there? I mean, forget the building. Um, those, I think you're still going to, probably not a lot of new opportunities. Let me put it that way. I think we'll see some offices move in there. We'll, we'll still have a jail presence, but it'll be more of a day jail mm-hmm. in terms of uh, housing uh, inmates that have uh, court dates. Court dates, And so the, some of that will still happen. Then, then I expect you'll see some of those floors renovated. Uh, to to continue to be office space, but um, so but again, all that takes capital. If uh, to to take a jail or even to take a, a warehouse like we've got down at, at the day lab facilities, and to turn that into offices is millions of dollars. And the first priority is to build the new jail, much less renovate everything else. So. Um, so we've got a long list of capital needs, and so what will ultimately become of the old jail? I uh, anticipate county offices of some kind or another. So, Talk a little bit about transportation needs. You're the uh, new representative on the MTC. Yeah. I don't know if you took that willingly or somebody just put the hat on you. You, you were the last guy to say no. It's sort of a combination of the two. Is I was you know, so, uh, president of the Association of Bay Area Governments, um, not this last year, but the two years prior to that, and that was a key time for developing Plan Bay Area, which is uh, the template for both transportation and uh, housing uh, planning and incentives for the Bay Area uh, to reduce vehicle miles traveled and and all the related impacts. Um, And so I've served the last two years on MTC as ABAG's representative to MTC. So I'm I'm familiar with what's been going on there, but I haven't been the county rep. That's been Bill Dodd's job. And and so he's done the the yeoman's work in terms of representing the county's issues to MTC. He get NCTPA, our local transportation right. authority, 
gives him a cheat sheet and he goes to work every every couple of weeks and so so long story short yes there's lots to do at MTC um I think with the background I've got uh, I understand well one the staff and the, and the electeds that serve on those um uh, boards but but also the plan that we're implementing and how that all comes together and connecting transportation and housing to best meet the the future demands in our bay area as well as locally so as the county rep now, I'll step into Bill's role of making sure that, that we're at the table whenever the pie is sliced and make sure that we get what we need. And I know American Canyon is talking about widening Highway 29, a key corridor, doing a better job of signalizing that area. Uh, of course, we've got Highway 12 that still has some holes in it that need to get, well, that's probably not, yeah, we do have holes that need to get filled, but we, right. we have some uh, overpasses that need to get built. Um, and we got the vine trail was one of those things that, that comes up before us. So, so we need to be at the table to, to, you know, we're not going to, well, need to get our share of the pie, so to speak. And we've got a great working relationship in the North Bay, uh, with Solano, Napa, Marin and Sonoma kind of being the North Bay block. And, and, uh, we're able to, uh, work together to make sure our interests are well represented when you're dealing with San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland, and, and other interests. And so I think we have a very good working relationship, um, as a community board, MTC, uh, at, uh, at MTC. And so, uh, so I think with my experience, I kind of felt like, you know, I, you know, sometimes you just look at, okay, well, what is it I'm set up to do and I looked like I was just set up to take this role and, and carry it forward given my experience. What is your sense of what can be done realistically in terms of American Canyon and the, and the bottlenecks that have um, uh, well, that developed? Well, we, just at, at NCTPA, uh, we recently uh, reviewed a study where they're looking at what the opportunities there and basically widening it. We're mm-hmm. adding, talking about adding lanes to, to both directions to get more traffic through that area. So uh, it is interesting what an extra lane can do at a signal. We saw that at the right. airport in terms of just simply adding a lane. So you've got three lanes of traffic moving through a light for a couple minutes versus two lanes. You actually move 50% more traffic through there. And so uh, so those, so that's one of the first things is looking at how to widen that area that still um, it doesn't ruin the community. That doesn't look like you've got a six-lane highway going down the middle of your right. community. So trying to see if uh, what's acceptable to American Canyon in terms of what the look and feel of that would be. And then, of course, is the funding. So we've got to come up with that, um, and that will be a long-term effort, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Well, always, <laughs> they're always <laughs> right, a right, long-term right, effort. Right. What are the other issues that, I mean, after 18 years on the board, what are the issues that still get you excited, that you're, you still really – enjoy dealing with did you say work proximity housing so, <laughs> uh, we come up with a very innovative program um, to deal with the issue of affordable housing and that is to um, instead of trying to deed restrict a particular property or manage a particular property uh, we take we moved and now we help people um, who were targeting so we help low and moderate income people who work in Napa to buy homes in Napa and so uh, the way we do that is to say if you're low and moderate income and you uh, are going to buy a home within 15 miles of where you work, then we will provide 10% of the price of the house as an equity share. And there's no uh, demand on that until you sell or refinance the home and then you pay us back 10% of the future value mm-hmm. of that home. So banks look at it like cash because there's no financial demand until they're out of the picture again. 
Um, but it's been very effective at doing two things. Uh, one is providing essentially a source of a down payment, and two, uh, essentially buying down the financing needs by 10% for that particular home. And and so we have 52 uh, families now who are homeowners as a result of this program uh, in the couple years that we've been operating it, which is a whole lot more affordable housing than what we built in the last couple of years. So uh, so it, it's really effective. It's cost effective. We're spending about $30,000, or at least in this case, we spent about $30,000 per loan. And we've been paid back uh, in the four or five that have paid us back because of refinancing. They paid us back $40,000, meaning uh, they built up $100,000 in equity over that period of time. And we're smart enough to say, and we don't need you anymore. So they refinanced and bought us out. And uh, and now they're homeowners, free and clear. So it's real homeownership. There's no restriction on what you can sell your property for or anything as, as in the traditional property management uh, programs that we've had. Um, so it's really, uh, I think, a unique program which really um, does what we need to do, use existing housing, existing housing stock that is affordable, and get people who want to be in the housing market, who want affordable housing, who don't want to have to rent or move out of our community uh, to uh, to get into that and become uh, essentially permanent members of our community. So this is working really well in Napa County. I believe it would work well throughout California. And so I uh, just had a meeting today where Association Bay Area Governments uh, asking questions of how do we make this a region-wide program so we can uh, start encouraging people to live closer to work you know, it's it's one. It's great to live near transit, but and you know, two hours on BART is still two hours on BART. <laughs> so, <laughs> the ideal is to live uh, where you're five, ten, fifteen uh, miles at most from uh, your work, so that you, you're not spending you know ten, twenty hours a week um, just sitting in transit. Uh, that uh, those are key hours of the day that you could be taking care of your kids, going to a game. Take, you know, cooking instead of buying McDonald's, uh, any number of things um, that that make for a healthier community. So we think this program is simple and as effective as it is, um, addresses a whole lot of issues. And uh, so I'm excited about it. It was born here in Napa due to our challenges of trying to make sense of what the state was asking us to build housing for our workers. And yet the housing we built right. isn't occupied by our workers. So what are you really telling us to do? And and this is a much better approach, and I have to say it also stimulates the housing market. Right. There's a lot of emphasis on you know construction from the state. We want to see new construction, but what this does is it brings new buyers into the market that aren't there otherwise. Uh, uh, in a cost-effective way, we take low and moderate income uh, families and get them in the housing market. Ideally, we would like to separate the affordability question from the building question, allow builders to build what they what the market demands, and then let's address these affordability issues in a separate avenue uh, like the Work Proximity Housing Program. And I think our builders that we've talked to in the, in the Bay Area are, um, now that they see what this is really doing, are very excited about it. Um, and in Napa Pipe, uh, they have the they have committed a million dollars to a program which will do this program for people buying into that project. Hmm. So it means that uh, there will be an incentive. It basically, they'll be able to buy into the the project at ten percent less with a ten percent assistance on the down payment uh, for people who work in Napa. So um, so we will be this will be the first project specific works proximity housing program, but. Uh, 
I'm excited to see how that'll play out. How did this idea evolve? You said uh, it was given birth, you know, yeah. right here. How did, how did yeah, the whole well, idea evolve? Um, it evolved, I think, in part because of our frustration of, you know, why is it the state's asking us to put 2,000 units of housing in our ag watershed areas? And, and it's... And their argument is, look, you're creating workers, you should be creating housing. And, and it just became really apparent that, well, yeah, but there's no connection there. We, we've seen houses built and they're not occupied by workers. You're assuming right. some. So there's no nexus. And we also see the problem of uh, the affordability in our community being um, you know, higher than what the average worker can afford. And this is you know, this displacement that happens in a destination community and you look to Aspen and, and other areas of the, the country which are destination communities and you see that nobody who works in Napa or works in Aspen lives in Aspen. And so it was how can we – the question was how can we create a program that resists that displacement effort and uh, I'll have – you know, I, the board has given I, – I, it's been the board. But I was sort of the champion of the effort. Mm-hmm. But if I didn't have four board members behind me saying, you know, go, 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 we, we wouldn't have got there because we kept banging our heads. And for the longest time, we were working with a, a property management paradigm. But eventually, and we were also working with realtors, Randy Gillardi, uh, Cynthia Turnbow, uh, Steve Smith, uh, Elliot Faxton were, were key players in helping make something work because it has to work in the escrow process and the like. And they, they finally, uh, Cindy said, you know, Mark, why is it that, important that they own this property when they could buy the property across the street um, with a different color tile. And and, uh, that's what caused us to move from the property management paradigm to let's work with buyers, allow them to buy the property that they want. Um, But as long as, you know, they're low to moderate income and they're working in our community and using that avenue, it it sidestepped a whole bunch of the legal questions that exist when you're trying to manage property. So Long story short, as we had an idea of the problem, and we just kept banging our heads till we found a solution, and with the great help of uh, the, the people I mentioned, as well as a board who just kept allowing, gave me plenty of rope to run with, <laughs> uh, we finally got a program that is just really simple, given all the effort that we put into it. But, I mean, that's the ideal, is you have something simple, easy to implement, and really addresses uh, the needs that we were looking for. I mentioned that you were have been on the board for 18 years. You're going to run for re-election again in two years? That's the plan until I announce otherwise. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, it's always hard. It seems like as soon as you're elected, uh, the day after you're elected, the, the easy answer is no, I, I don't want to ever do that again. <laughs> That's kind of like giving <laughs> right. birth. Um, so it's not fair to ask at that point. And, uh, and it's just you don't know what the next uh, – two years or four years hold, and here we are in a situation where Bill Dodd's left, Keith Caldwell's leaving, um, and uh, and we're at a critical juncture in terms of some of the issues that we're dealing with in the county, and, you know, is it time for me to step aside and just hand it over to who knows who? I don't think so. At least that's where I'm at today, and, um, and so uh, as much as, you know, I'm yeah, I'll be pushing 60 years old, so, you know, maybe you know, it's time, but uh, I still I don't feel 60, and I think, well, of course, I don't know what 60 is supposed to feel, feel like. like but, right. <laughs> but, uh, well, there's, uh, there's institutional knowledge. That, I mean, we just talked about, I mean, Bill had been there a long time. Yeah. He left. You know, Keith's been there a little while, and, uh, you know, it's uh, you become one of the senior folks. Right, and uh, I assume Diane and Brad will, will well, at least they'll be there another four years, and so so they will be key as well, but that's, that's two people, and so, um, and... Uh, 
so yeah, it's it's I've got a lot of institutional memory. I mean, this whole discussion of you know what is a winery and what continues to justify being there. Well, I was on the county planning commission when 1985 when we began that discussion, right. and so I remember. I'm not just talking theoretically. I'm talking what it was uh, historically, and um, and so that's important because sometimes uh, it's easy to forget. As this as this discussion around wineries began, what I'm hearing from people is, well, you just need more mitigations. You need more of this. No, you need to get back to the fundamental question of why are we doing this, and should we be doing it anymore, and go back to where we started and and reassess. You know our. Uh, are we in a different place? And we are in a different place, and we do need to reassess, and we need to have that discussion again. And I unfortunately don't think it will necessarily be done in the next two years, but we'll we'll see what we can do. So. And finally, uh, coming back to the same issue in terms of the winery definition and all these winery issues we've talked about, how have your views changed or have stayed consistent or shifted in any way over the past uh, 18 years about these issues? I think I've learned a lot. Let's just put it that way. I, I there's, there's some values I held. I don't know that those have changed going in, but I, you know, we've had the debates. I've been on both sides of every debate, <laughs> so right. I was debating the land stewards about you know their idea that uh, we have certain property rights. Remember right. it well, yeah, and then that anything the county did was a taking. You know, even if we set the limit on a height of a fence, we should have to pay people for that and. So I had to explain and debate in public, you know, the idea of community rights and community interests and how it's not just one-sided. You've got to weigh community interests against private interests. But that's not to say you just miss private interests. Those those are legit as well. You know, somebody owns acreage that we've said is to be used for vineyards or agriculture, and then we have an obligation to see that they get to use their property in the way we've said is intended. So... So I think I've been around each issue broadly and widely enough where I understand where both sides are coming from and ultimately try to, to find the balance. I mean, that's basically what I believe we do is is to try and weigh uh, community interests, private interests, long-term interests versus short-term interests and uh, come up with solutions that ultimately are, are good for everyone in the long term. And when everybody's mad, you know you did the right thing. Uh, well, both sides there are times when you did the right thing and everybody's mad. But hopefully that's not always the situation, <laughs> that ultimately you make a few people happy along the way. So, Napa County Supervisor Mark Luce, I thank you so much for coming in and spending time with us on NapaBroadcasting.com. It's a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now.